Hello, and welcome to Infinite Cast, a podcast. Yes. We are here. Salutations, dear, Salutations. Listeners, dear listeners. Um, I don't know if we have any uh, preamble, anything that you want to say? Not really. No? I don't know. <laughs> I was just saying before we started, uh, the, the I'm like thinking about where the book's been, and I'm like, you know what? We haven't really had any follow-up. Uh, is Don getting shot where's don yeah where's don what happened to don uh we've been dicking around with the the boys for a while the uh the tennis boys and and various peripheral characters getting new characters introduced yeah still at this late late age well we say this late age but we still despite feeling like we're nearing the end zone we have what like a third of the book left we're about to hit page 700 which is very exciting yeah so only what 200 like 200 something, something pages. pages 290 <laughs> plus pages plus some footnotes plus some footnotes so like a regular size novel yeah a regular size book okay great yeah. well onward onward the le- the more we talk the less far in the book we get well i guess the way we do this we would typically do the same amount no matter how much we talked at the beginning yeah just whatever chapter chunk makes sense it's true no, none of this is limited on time anyway yeah. anyway that's why they call it the infinite cast it's the infinite cast we can guess as much as we want yes. all right let's do it Yes. 14th November, year of the dependent adult undergarment. Ms. Ruth Van Cleve's first day off, new residence, three-day house restriction. Sorry, a new character. Sorry. Okay, great. Allowed now to hit meetings outside Enfield if accompanied by some more senior resident the staff judges safe. Ruth Van Cleve in spike heels, walking alongside a psychotically depressed Kate Gompert on Prospect, just south of Inman Square, Cambridge, a little after 2200 hours, yammering nonstop. Ruth Van Cleve is shaping up to be excruciating for Kate Gompert to be around. Ruth Van Cleve hails from Braintree on the South Shore. Braintree, one of the funniest named places in America. Braintree. Uh, Let me get up and let me climb your Braintree. Because it makes me think of either a tree with a bunch of brains hanging off of it like pears. Or the other thing is, and maybe this is what it is, is like if you think of a big bushy tree, it kind of looks like a brain. Like neural neural networks everywhere. Neurons. Brain tree. Receptors. Receptors submit to the brain tree. <laughs> uh, is many kilos underweight, wears brass colored lipstick, and has dry hair teased out in the big hair fashion of decades past. Her face has the late stage ice, which takes us to end note 284. Uh, ice, a crude and cheap form of combustible methadrine favored by the same sort of addictive class that sniffs gasoline fumes or coats the inside of a paper bag with airplane glue and puts the bag over their face and breathes until they fall down and starts to convulse. <laughs> you ever you ever uh, sniffed glue? I, uh, <laughs> I never got up to that kind of high school shenanigan Me neither. Uh, it no, it I, felt I, a little I, passe. I never, I never did a huff. I, just, I, I remember it as kind of like a dated insult of like, like wh- what are you, like this guy snipping glue. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I really only know about it, you know, as something that the Ramones would say that they wanted to do. No, I want to snipping glue. glue. Uh, back to the text. The late stage ice addict's concave, long-jawed, insectile look. Her hair is a dry, tangled cloud with tiny little eyes and bones and projecting beak underneath. Joel V. Deed said it almost looked like Ruth Van Cleve's hair grew her head instead of the other <laughs> way around. Kate Gompert's hair is butcher block cut and has recognizable color, at least. Kate Gompert hasn't slept in four nights, and her slumped progress up the prospect sidewalk resembles the lazy tack of a boat in no rush. <laughs> Ruth Van Cleve talks nonstop into her right ear. It's around 2,200 hours on Saturday, and the sodium street lights keep going off and then on again with a stuttered hum, some connection in them loose somewhere. Foot traffic is dense, and the undead and drunks who live in the street around Inman Square also crowd the sidewalk's edges. And if Kate G. looks at the images of passerby, passersby in the darkened shop windows, they become pedestrians and undead stem artists. Just heads that seem to float across each window, unconnected to anything, as in disconnected floating heads. Uh, indoor, in, hey, what's a disconnected floating head? Maybe like a skull that you give a uh, soliloquy to. Oh, yes. It's get, the imagery is getting, you know, things are happening. Uh, in doorways by shops are incomplete persons in wheelchairs with creative receptacles where limbs should be and hand-lettered invitations to help them. An oral narrative begins to emerge. 
Ms. Ruth V.C. has been remanded to Ennett House by DSS and family court after her newborn baby was discovered in a brain tree at Massachusetts Alley swaddled in Walmart advertising circulars whose Harvest Moon value specials had expired 11.01, a Sunday. Ruth Van Cleve had rather unshrewdly left the hospital ID bracelet with its DOB and her own name and health card number on the discarded infant's wrist. The infant is apparently now in a South Shore hospital incubator attached to machines and tapering off the clonidine, which takes us to a note 285. This has got to be a mispronunciation or catacresis on RVC's part since clonidine 226-dichloroanilino to imidazoline is a decidedly adult strength anti-hypertensive the infant would have to be nfl size to tolerate it i mean another reference to gigantic infants big infants big babies back to the text uh the clonidine it received for in utero addictions to substances kate gompert can only speculate about which takes us to note 286 kate g's never done ice or crack slash base slash crank nor even cocaine or low impact drins Drug addicts tend to fall into different classes. Those who like Downs and Mr. Hope rarely enjoy stimulants, while Coke and Drin fiends, as a rule, abhor marijuana. This is an area of potentially fruitful study in addictionology. Note that pretty much every class of addicts drinks, though. Mm. Back to the text. The father of Ruth Van Cleve's child, she reports, is under the protection and care of the Norfolk County Correctional Authority, awaiting sentencing for what Ruth Van Cleve describes several times as operating a pharmaceutical company without a license. <laughs> What's remarkable to Kate Gompert is that she seems to be move for she seems to be able to move forward without any sort of conscious moving forward type volitions. She puts her left foot in front of her right foot and then her right foot in front of her left foot and she's moving forward her whole self, when all she's capable of concentrating on is one foot and then the other foot. Heads glide by in the darkened windows. Some of the Latino males in the vicinity do a kind of sexual checking out as they pass. Even though underweight and dry-haired and kind of haggish, Ruth Van Cleve's manner and attire and big hair broadcast that she's all about sexuality and sex. (laughs) (laughs) I I love to wear an outfit and uh, do a self-presentation that says, I'm all about sex. I'm overtly sexual. I'm I'm OS. A negative thing about opting for recovery in NA instead of AA is availability and location of meetings. In other words, fewer NA meetings. On a Saturday night, you could stand on the roof of Ennett House in Enfield and be hard-pressed to spit in any direction without hitting some AA venue nearby, whereas the closest Saturday PM NA meeting is North Cambridge's Clean and Serene group. Famous for infamous for crosstalk and chair throwing, and the things beginners meeting goes from uh, uh, twenty hundred hours to twenty one hundred hours, and the regular from twenty one hundred to twenty two hundred, purposefully late to offset the Saturday night Jones. So many drug addicts suffer weekly. Saturday still being the week's special mythic party night, even for persons who long ago ceased to be able to do anything but party twenty four seven three sixty five. But from Inman Square back to Ennett House is. A ghastly hike. Hoof up Prospect to Central Square and take the red line all the way to Park Street Station and then the maddening Green Line B train forever west on Com Ave. And it's now after 22.15 hours, meaning Kate Gompert has 75 minutes to get herself in this hideous, despair-producing, slutty, and yammering newcomer behind <laughs> beside her back for curfew. Ruth Van Cleve's chatter is as listener interest independent as anything Kate Gompert's heard since Randy Lenz got invited to ingest substances and abuse animals elsewhere and left, which was who knows how many days or weeks ago. The two move in and out of cones of epileptic light from fluttering street lamps. Kate Gompert is trying not to shudder as Ruth Van Cleve's Ruth Van Cleve asks her if she knows someplace you can pick up a good toothbrush cheap. <laughs> Kate Gompert, would you? How would you respond to that question? Be like, uh, right aid. <laughs> I don't know. But cheap. Yeah. I mean, there used to be that ninety-nine cent store right around the corner from our old apartment. That, yeah. That would really would have stuff like a toothbrush for cheap. Yeah, a cheap toothbrush. None of the little like rubber stickies that are on your modern toothbrushes. None of the like multicolored things. If you just need the classic, just the bristles, plastic plus white bristles, can't really get those anymore. Yeah, that's true. Also, I'm just, I, you know, 
I love the idea of knowing a guy. Yeah, having like, a toothbrush. Oh, I know a guy who's a got, guy. got some bulk toothbrushes. Yeah, basically like a, like a guy who's selling Rolex as though he opens his uh, trench coat and it's all like the stuff, the the mini uh, like uh, hygiene stuff that you'd find in an airport uh, convenience store. Honestly, like, why not? Tiny, <laughs> t- okay. tiny uh, deodorants. <laughs> travel size. They call them travel size. <laughs> Kate Gompert's entire spiritual energy and attention are focused on first her left foot and then her right foot. One of the heads she does not see floating in the windows with her own unrecognizable head and Ruth Van Cleve's cloud of hair is the gaunt and spectral hollow-eyed head of poor Tony Krause, who's several steps behind them and matching their slightly serpentine course step for step, eyeing string purses he imagines contain more than just train fare and N.A. newcomers' keychains. New paragraph. The vaporizer chugs and seethes and makes the room's windows weep as Jim Trolch inserts a pro-wrestling cartridge in the little TP's viewer and dons his tackiest sport coat and wet combs his hair down smooth so it looks toupee-ish and settles back on his bunk, surrounded by Seldane bottles and two-ply facial tissues, preparing to call the action. His roommates have long since seen what was coming and screwed. <laughs> uh, new, new paragraph. Standing on tiptoe in Subdorm B's curved hallway, using the handle of an inverted tennis racket whose vinyl cover he can absently zip and unzip as he moves the handle around, Michael Pemulus is gently raising one of the panels in the drop ceiling and shifting it on its aluminum strut, the panel, changing its lie on the strut from square-shaped to diamond-shaped, being careful not to let it fall. Uh, new paragraph. Lyle hovers cross-legged just a couple millimeters above the top of the towel dispenser in the unlit weight room, eyes rolled up white, lips barely moving and making no sound. <laughs> new paragraph. Uh, Coach Stitt and Mario tear ass downhill on West Commonwealth on Stitt's old BMW, bound for Evangeline's low-temperature confections in Newton Center, right at the bottom of what usually gets called Heartbreak Hill, Stitt intense-faced and leaning forward like a skier, his white scarf whipping around and whipping Mario's face in the sidecar as Mario, too, leans way forward into their downhill flight, preparing to whoop when they bottom out. New paragraph. Ms. Avril Cadenza, seeing somehow to have three or four cigarettes all going at once, (laughs) secures from information the phone and email numbers of a journalistic business address on East Tucson AZ's Blasted Expanse Boulevard, then begins to dial, using the stern of a blue felt pen to stab at the console's keys. New paragraph. Interesting, interesting. Aye, cries the man, rushing at the nun, wielding a power tool. The tough-looking nun yells, aye, right back, as she kicks at him expertly, her habit's skirts whipping complexly around her. The combatants circle each other warily in the abandoned warehouse, both growling. The nun's wimple is askew and soiled. The back of her hand, held out in a bladish martial arts fist, displays part of a faded tattoo, some wicked clawed bird of prey. The cartridge opens like this, in violent media res, then freezes in the middle of the nun's leaping kick, and its title, Blood Sister, One Tough Nun, gets matte dissolved in and bleeds lurid blood-colored light down into the performance credits rolling across the screen's bottom. Bridget Boone and Francis L. Unwin have come in uninvited and joined Hal in VR6 and are curled up against the arms of the room's other recumbency, their feet touching at the soles, Boone eating unauthorized frozen yogurt from a cylindrical carton. Hal's turned the rheostat down low, and the film's title and credits make their faces glow redly. Bridget Boone extends the confection carton over in Hal's direction in an inviting way, and by way of declining, Hal points to the lump of Kodiak in his cheek and makes a display of leaning out to spit. He appears to be studying the scrolling credits very closely. So what is this, Fran Unwin says. Hal looks over at her very slowly, then even more slowly raises his right arm and points around the tennis ball he's squeezing at the monitor, where the cartridge's 50-point title is still trickling redly over the credits and frozen scene. Bridget Boone gives him him a look. What's up your particular butt? I'm isolating. I came in here to be by myself. She has this way that gets to Hal of digging the chocolate yogurt out with the spoon and then inverting the spoon, turning the spoon over so that it always enters her mouth upside down and her tongue gets to contact the confection immediately without the mediation of cold spoon. And for some reason, this has always gotten under Hal's skin. So then you should have locked the door. 
except there aren't locks on the VR doors, which takes us to end note 287, since last winter, when a stale smell, litter of dental stimulators, and single slender spit-wet butt signify that a certain upperclassman had been smoking panatellas late at night in VR3. <laughs> Back to the text. Uh, uh, there aren't locks on the VR doors, as what you quite well know. Round-faced fan- Franny Unwin says, shh. Then, too, sometimes Boone plays with the laden spoon, makes it fly around in front of her face like a child's plane before inverting it and sticking it in. <laughs> Maybe this is partly because this is a public room for everybody that your <laughs> thinking person probably wouldn't choose to isolate in. Uh, Hal leans over to spit and lets the spit hang for a while before he lets it go, so it hangs there slowly distending. Boone withdraws the clean spoon just as slowly. No matter how sullen and pouty that person is over that person's play or near loss in full view of a whole crowd that day, I hear. Bridget, I forgot to tell you that I saw Rite Aids having an enormous clearance on emetics. If I were you, I would scoot right over. You are vile. Bernadette Longley sticks her long boxy head in the door and sees Bridget Boone and says, I thought I heard you in here and comes in uninvited with Jenny Bash in tow. Hal whimpers. Jenny Bash looks at the large screen. The cartridge's theme music is female choral and very heavy and ironic on the de- the descants. Descants. Bernadette Longley looks at Hal. You know, there's a totally huge lady cruising the halls looking for you with a notebook <laughs> and a very determined expression. Boone banks the spoon back and forth absently. He's isolating. He won't respond and is spitting extra repulsively to get across the point. Jenny Bash says, haven't you got a huge paper due for Teary tomorrow? There was moaning coming from Strzok and Shaw's room. That would be the, uh, the, the paper can, that the he Canadian, uh, plagiarizes. The Canadian paper. Hal packs Chew down with his tongue. Done. Figures, Bridget Boone says. Done, redone, formatted, printed, proofed, collated, stapled. Proofs are within its life, Boone says, barrel rolling the spoon. Hal can tell she's done a couple one-hitters. He's looking straight at the wall screen, squeezing the ball so hard his forearm keeps swelling to twice its size. Plus, I hear your best friend in the world did something... uh, I I hear your best friend in the whole world did something really funny today, Longley says. She means pemulous, Fran Unwin tells Hal. Bridget Boone makes dive bomber sounds and swoops the spoon around. Sounds like too good a story not to save and let my craving for it build and build until finally it's like I have to hear it or die right on the spot. What is up his butt? Jenny Bash asks Fran Unwin. Fran Unwin's a sort of Hanuman-faced girl. Hanuman? H-A-N-U-M-A-N. That's not one I know. A Newman-faced girl with a torso and trunk about twice as long as her legs and a scuttly, vaguely Simeon style of play. Bernadette Longley wears knee-length candy cane trousers and a sweatshirt with the fleecy inside the fleecy inside out. All of the girls now are in socks. Hal notes that girls always seem to slip out of their shoes when they assume any kind of spectatorial posture. Eight empty white sneakers now sit mute and weird at various points, slightly stuck in, sunk in carpet pile. No two of the shoes face the sa- quite the same direction. Uh, sorry, I'm distracted. No two of the shoes face quite the ex- same exact direction. Male players, on the other hand, tend to leave the footwear on when they come in and sit down somewhere. Girls literally embody the idea of making yourself at home. <laughs> Males, when they come in somewhere and sit down, project an air of transience, <laughs> remain suited up and mobile. It's the same whenever Hal comes in and sits down someplace where people are already gathered. He's aware that they sense that he's somehow there, only in a very technical sense, that he's got an air of moment's notice readiness to leave about him. Boone extends her carton of TCBY, success to to (sighs) Y'all ever notice that that boys sit around like this while girls sit around like that? it, It does be that way. Uh, Endo 288, the continent's best yogurt. The continent's best yogurt. Uh, TCBY low key fell off. I used to get TCBY. High key fell off. I, I used to get TCBY all the time. A fun uh, core memory I have: the the girlies on TikTok likes to talk about core memories, okay. and a core memory I have is going to TCBY with my friend Charles before we went to go look at that comet that was there in nineteen ninety eight. 
Newer 96? The Haley's, the Hale, Haley's Comet? Haley's Comet. Not Hale Bop. Hale Bop is the one they killed themselves over. Those guys killed themselves over. Yeah. Haley's Comet. Haley's Comet. Like a once in a lifetime comet. Anyway, I associate it. I associate it with the the country's best yogurt. Yeah. I can't remember. The comet's best yogurt. Can't remember what flavor. <laughs> can't remember what flavor I got, though. Who cares? Parfait. A big, That's a big thing was flying across the sky. Boone extends her carton of TCBY toward Longley in an inviting way, even tilting it invitingly back and forth. Longley puffs her cheeks and blows air out with a fatigued sound. At least three different smells of cologne and skin cream struggle for primacy in here. Bridget Boone's free LA gear shoes are both on their sides from the force of having LA gear also also high key fell off. They did light up LA gear shoes, yeah, right? Are those LA lights? Well, those are LA lights, but, but same I assume company? same company. company. Oh man, when light up when the light 90s. up when light up shoes first hit the scene, boy, oh boy, folks, y'all remember the nineties? I think light up shoes still exist for kids in elementary school, but that technology was invented when we were there and pioneered and cannot, perfected. Cannot stress enough. Well, now people can wear light up shoes. That was. People are li- wearing light up shoes to the rave, which oh, yeah, is fun. Uh, yes. Um, uh, on their sides, from the force of having uh, almost been kicked off her feet. Hal's spit makes a sound against the bottom of the wastebasket. Jenny Bash has bigger arms than Hal. The viewing room is redly dim. Bash asks, asks Unwin what they're watching. Blood Sister, one tough nun, one of himself's few commercial successes, wouldn't have made near the money it made if it hadn't come out just as Interlace was starting to purchase first-run features for its rental menus and hyping the cartridges with one-time spontaneous disseminations. Netflix. It was the sort of sleazy-looking shocksploitation film that would have had a two-week run in multiplex theaters, eight and above, and then gone right to the featureless brown boxes of magnetic video limbo. Howe's critical take on the film is that himself, at certain points, at certain dark points, when abstract theory issues seem to provide an escape from the far more wrenching creative work of making humanly true or entertaining cartridges, had made films in certain commercial-type genre modes that so grotesquely exaggerated the formulaic shticks of the genre, uh, genres that they became ironic metacinematic parodies on the genres, sub-slash-inversions of the genres cognoscenti taken in were wont to call them. The metacinematic parody idea was itself so aloof and overclever to Hal's way of thinking, and he's not comfortable with the way himself always seemed to get seduced by the very commercial formulae he was trying to invert. It sounds like uh, himself effectively directed machete here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Robert Rodriguez's machete. Yeah. Especially the seductive formulae of violent payback, i.e. the cathartic bloodbath, i.e. the hero trying with every will fiber to eschew the generic world of the stick and fist and butt driven by unjust circumstances back into the violence again to the cathartic final bloodbath the audience, audience is brought to applaud instead of mourn. Himself's best in this vein was The Night Wears a Sombrero, <laughs> a Lang-esque meta-Western, but also a really good Western, with chintzy homemade interior sets, but breathtaking exteriors shot outside Tucson, Arizona. An ambivalent but finally avenging sun story played out against dust-colored skies. Ugh. An ambivalent but finally, uh, finally avenging sun story? Hamlet much? <laughs> Sorry. Hamlet in the Old West. Uh... Old West Hamlet, uh, Western Western omelet. Do you think uh, D, uh, uh, DFW is a fan of Robert Rodriguez? It sounds like I mean he would have yeah, right? would have definitely seen like Desperado and El Mariachi. Didn't he like big dumb movies? Wasn't yeah. that like one of his tastes? Uh, and we've been through this. His big, the big thing that he really loves is Lynch. Yeah, but that's like I think what his serious respectable thing. You got to assume that he engaged in the like you know the nineties you know the the new hotness. Rodriguez, Tarantino. Yeah, it was a great time for cinema. Yeah, and, and the, <laughs> the kind of meta intertextuality that he's talking here, but he's talking about it with some amount of disdain. I'm sure yeah. he had complicated well, feelings about hate, like what to say a Tarantino was doing. He hates he hates himself for enjoying things that are uh, designed to purely entertain you. 
Yeah, but I think that's what we can talk about this at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Put a a footnote on Tarantino. An ambivalent but finally avenging sun story played out over dust-colored skies and big angles of flesh-colored mountain, plus with minimal splatter, shot men clutching their chests and falling deliciously sideways, all hats staying on at all times. (laughs) Blood Sister, One Tough Nun, was a supposedly ironic lampoon of the avenging cleric splatter films of the late BS 90s. Nor did himself, so this is him sort of like predicting a trend that like yeah. kind of happened. I don't know. Uh, was a supposedly, uh, sorry, nor did himself make any friends on either side of the concavity trying to shoot the thing in Canada. <laughs> Hal tries to imagine the tall, slumped, tremulous stork shape of himself inclined at an osteoporotic angle over digital editing equipment for hours on end, deleting and inserting code, arranging Blood Sister One Tough Nun into subversive-slash-inversion, subversive and can't summon one shadowy idea of what himself might have been feeling as he patiently labored. Maybe that was the point of the thing's meta-silliness, to have nothing really felt going on. Interesting. Which takes us to end note 289. In point of a fact wholly unknown to Hal... B.S.O.T.N. was, in fact, a very sad self-hate festival on himself's part, a veiled allegory of sponsorship and himself's own miserable distaste for the vacant grins and reductive platitudes of the Boston AA that MDs and counselors kept referring him to. Interesting. Back to the text. Jenny Bash has left VR6's door agape, and Idris Arslanian and Todd Postalwaite Postlethwaite and Kent Blot all drift in and sit Indian-style in a loose hemisphere on the thick carpet between the girls' recumbency and Hal's recumbency, and are more or less considerately quiet. They all keep their sneakers on. Postalwaite's nose is a massive proboscoid bandaged thing. Kent Blot wears a sport fisherman's cap with an extremely long bill. That queer, faint smell of hot dogs that seems to follow Idris Arslanian around (laughs) begins to insinuate itself into the room's colognes. He isn't wearing the rayon handkerchief as a blindfold, but does have it tied around his neck. No one asks him about it. All the littler kids are consummate spectators and are sucked immediately into Blood Sister's unfolding narrative, and the older females seem to take some kind of psychic cue from the little boys and subside to and watch until after a while, Hal's the only person in the room who isn't 100% absorbed. The entertainment's uptake is that a tough biker chick type girl from the mean streets of Toronto is found OD'd, beaten up, molested, and robbed of her leather jacket outside the portcullis of a downtown convent and is rescued, nursed, befriended, spiritually guided, and converted, saved is the weak entendre made much of in the first act's dialogue, by a tough-looking older nun who, it turns out, she reveals, the tough older nun, had herself been hauled up out of a life of Harley's narcotics dealing and addiction by an even tougher, even older nun, a nun who had herself been saved by a tough ex-biker nun, and so on. The latest saved biker chick becomes a tough and street-smart nun in the same urban order and is known on the mean streets as Blood Sister and, wimple or not, still rides her hog from parish to parish and still knows Aikido and is not to be fucked with is the word on the streets. (laughs) The motivational crux here being that almost this whole order of nuns is staffed by nuns who had been saved from Toronto's mean dead-end streets by other older, tougher, saved nuns. So, endless novenas later... Uh, did I pronounce that right? Novena? Novena? I don't know. Who cares? Uh, Blood Sister eventually feels this transitive spiritual urge to go out and find a troubled adolescent female of her own to save and bring into the order, thereby discharging her soul's debt to the old tough nun who'd saved her. Through processes obscure, a Toronto troubled but savable adolescent girl directory of some sort, Bridget Boone cuts wise, <laughs> Blood Sister eventually takes on a burn-scarred, deeply troubled adolescent punker-type Toronto girl who is sullen and, yes, reasonably tough, but is also vulnerable and emotionally tormented. The girl's pink, shiny, burn-scarred face tends to writhe in misery whenever she thinks Blood Sister is not looking by the terrible depredations she's endured as a result of her rapacious and unshakable addiction to crank cocaine, the kind you have to convert and cook up yourself, and with ether, which is highly combustible, and which people used before somebody found out baking soda and temperature flux would do the same thing, which dates the film's BS time period even more clearly than the tough, tortured punk girl's violet stelliform coiffure, which takes us to end of 290. Whether the girl's hideous facial burn scars are the result of a freebase accident is never made explicit in the film. 
Bernadette Longley says she kind of hopes that's the case because otherwise the scars would function as symbols of some deeper and more spiritual wound slash hideousness. And the symbolic equation of facial with moral deformity strikes everybody over 13 in the room as terribly gooey and heavy and stock. <laughs> now he's making fun of himself for doing the whole fucking veiled yeah. thing. The veiled lady. Madame. I'm not sure if Madame plays this girl. I don't think she does. We'd have to go back in the filmography. We'd have to look at the filmography again, which we could. We could. But so, Blood Sister eventually gets the girl clean by nurturing her through withdrawal in a locked sacristy, and the girl becomes less sullen by degrees that almost have audible clicks to them. The girl stops trying to dicky the lock of the sacramental wine cabinet, stops farting on purpose during matins and vespers, stops going up to the Trappists who hang around the convent and asking them for the time and other sly little things to try to make them slip up and speak aloud, etc., a couple times, the girl's face rise in emotional torment and vulnerability, even when Blood Sister's looking. The girl gets a severe and somewhat lesbianic haircut, and her roots establish themselves as softly brown. Blood Sister, revealing biceps like nobody's business, <laughs> beats the girl at arm wrestling. They both laugh. They compare tattoos. This marks the start of a brutally drawn-out getting-to-know-and-trust-you montage a genre convention. This montage involving Harley rides at such speeds that the girl has to keep her hand on Blood Sister's head to keep B.S.'s wimple from flying off, and long conversational walks filmed at wide angle, and protracted and basically <laughs> unwinnable games of charades with the Trappists, plus some quick scenes of Blood Sister finding the girl's marble rose and dildo facsimile lighter in the wastebasket <laughs> of the girl doing chores unsullenly under B.S.'s grudgingly approving eye, of candlelit scripture study sessions with the girl's finger under each word she reads, of the girl carefully snipping the last bits of split violet ends from her soft brown hair, <laughs> of the more senior tough nuns punching Blood Sister's shoulder approvingly as the girl's eyes start to get that impending conversion gleam in them, <laughs> then finally of Blood Sister and the girl habit chopping, the girl's burned lantern jaw and hairless Promethean brow frozen in a sunlit montage climax shot under novitiate Wimple's gull wings, all accompanied by, no kidding, getting to know you, which Hal <laughs> imagines the stork justified to himself as subversively saccharine. This uh, all takes about half an hour. Well, Blood Sister's only 90 minutes long. Blood Sister, One Tough no Nun, Year of the Tux Medicated Pad, uh, Letrodactus Macton's Productions. This stars uh, Telma Hurley, Pam Heath, Marla Dean Chum, yep. Diane Saltoon, yep. Soma Richardson-Levy, yep. Cos and Cosgrove Watt. Okay. 35 millimeter, 90 minutes, color, sound, parody of revenge, recidivism, action genre, a formerly delinquent nun, Hurley's failure to reform a juvenile delinquent chum leads to a rampage of recidivist revenge. Mm. Great. So it's, yeah, his usual stable of, uh, of yeah. women. But it does not uh, star. Madame. Madame. Bridget Boone of the Indianapolis Archdiocese begins to declaim briefly on Blood Sister One Tough Nun's ironic anti-Catholic subthesis that the deformed, addicted girl's salvation here seemed simply the exchange of one will-obliterating habit for another, uh -huh. substituting one sort of outlandish head decoration for another, and gets pinched by Jenny Bash and shushed by just about everyone in the room but Hal, who could pass for a sleep, except for the brief lists to port over the wastebasket to spit, and, in fact, is experiencing some of the radical loss of concentration that attends THC withdrawal and is thinking about another, even more familiar J.O. and Condensa cartridge, even while he watches this one with the other ETAs. This other attention object is the late himself's so-called inversion of the corporate politic genre, low-temperature civics, an executive suite soap opera filled with power plays, position jockeyings, timid adulteries, martinis, and malignantly pretty female executives in elegant, tight-fitting dress-for-success wear who eat their paunched and muddled male counterparts for political lunch. It's like a Sorkin thing. Yeah. Honestly, it sounds like he made Mad Or Ally, Mc, Ally McBeal. Ally McBeal. It sounds like he made Mad Men there. <laughs> uh, Hal knows that LTC wasn't an inversion or lampoon at all, but derived right from the dark BS 80s period when himself had changed careers from government service to private entrepreneurism, when a sudden infusion of patent receipts left him feeling post-carrot anhedonic 
and essentially existentially unmoored and himself took an entire year off to drink wild turkey and watch <laughs> broadcast television tycoon operas like Lorimar's Dynasty et al. in a remote spa off Canada's northwest coast where he supposedly met and bonded with Lyle, now of the ETA weight room. Uh. What's intriguing but unknown to everyone in VR6 is the way Boone's take on himself's take on the substitution of one crutch for another interpretation of substituting Catholic devotion for chemical dependence is very close to the way many not yet desperate enough newcomers to Boston AA see Boston AA as just an exchange of slavish dependence on the bottle slash pipe for slavish dependence on meetings and banal shibboleths and robotic piety, an attitude of platitude, and use this idea that it's still slavish dependence as an excuse to stop trying Boston AA and to go back to the original slavish substance dependence until that dependence has finally beaten them into such a double-bound desperation that they finally come back in with their faces hanging off their skulls and beg to be told just what platitudes to shout and how high to adjust their vacant grins. Some substance-dependent persons, though, have already been so broken by the time they first come in that they don't care about stuff like substitution or banality. They'll give their left nut to trade their original dependence in for robotic platitudes and pep rally cheer. They're the ones with the gun to their head, the ones who stick and hang. It remains to be determined whether Joel Van Dyne, whose first appearance in a James O. Incondentia project project occurred in this very low temperature civics is one of those people who've come into AA slash NA shattered enough to stick but she's starting to ID more and more with a commitment speaker she hears who did come in shattered enough to know it's get straight or die. A click and a half straight downhill from ETA, Joelle is hitting the reality is for people that can't handle drugs group. A meeting <laughs> of the NA Splinter Cocaine Anonymous, which takes us to end note 291. After a heyday during the pre-millennial self-help craze, CAs receded back to being a splinter of the still enormous Narcotics Anonymous, and Pat Montesian and the Ennett House staff, while they have nothing against a resident with cocaine issues hitting the occasional CA venue, strongly suggest that residents stick with AA or NA and not make splinters like CA or Designer Drug Addicts Anonymous or Prescription Tranquilizers Anonymous their primary fellowship for recovery mostly because the splinters tend to have way fewer groups and meetings, and some none at all in certain parts of the U.S., and because their specifically, uh, extremely specific substance focus tends to narrow the aperture of recovery and focus too much on abstinence from just one substance instead of complete sobriety and a new way of spiritual, a new spiritual way of life in toto. Mm -hmm. We can go, what do you think, a little longer? How much until the next break? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. What, uh, what are we time-wise? Let's break there, because we're okay. at like 35 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, great. Um, a few things there. Uh, working backwards, the um, the way he talks about the splintering of uh, substance groups there yeah. obviously very much reminds me of the um, way leftist groups tend ah, to uh, fragment and split off. And like... Look, I am no, uh, I am no theorist of the left, but I do think that that was that's always the value of of the biggest org Big, that you Big will Ten. have. Yeah, that you will have the um, even if you don't agree with all of their principles, tactics, strategies, top level use of funds, whatever. Uh, you know, you gain the benefit from having the most access to the most people, uh, the biggest, broadest goals. Obviously, I'm a, a, a I'm a fucking dummy and usually just believe the last thing that I read about PSL or DSA or whatever, but <laughs> I don't know. That's like the thing that I keep in my head, but yeah. Yeah. You're not know. a dummy. Uh, <laughs> on, <laughs> look, I'm no Lennon. Who is? Which I would say, who is? <laughs> yes. Uh, count, count the, uh, the, the czarist um, <laughs> regimes overthrown. Yeah. Uh, you got anything on that? Um, a few things. I guess I'm thinking of specifically Blood Sister, One Tough Nun, mm -hmm. and the sort of like evangelical Catholicism, which I feel like is coming up at a relevant point. Lord knows, I hope people listen to this in the future, and the idea of like, uh, trad e-girls stops becoming a thing. I, I mm -hmm. hope we all move on collectively, but, uh, uh, in this, it's obviously Catholicism as a replacement for addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, Catholicism as a thing, a thing to replace about being annoying about online. <laughs> a, pe a pedantic 
yes. of pedantic Catholicism. Yes. Uh, where it's like, oh, I'm I'm gatekeeping God in this very specific way, but I'm also rather than just like taking pleasure in the basic community of going to church or, you know, maybe even feeling some higher power uh, present that I need to, like, uh, d- deal with. It's like, nope, I'm going to get into arguments online. It's about rules and who knows them better. Rules and who knows them and who's better at, better at talking about them and uh, who, looks, who looks hotter uh, at mass, I guess. Uh, come this fall, I'm going to pioneer online hipster Lutheranism. <laughs> Bring back what what happened to like Buddhism? Come on! Oh yeah, well that would be like this era, the 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 DFW era. Yes, would be I mean like Richard hipster Easternism. Richard you know? Gear was a big that I remember uh, a lot of you know I read a lot of magazines in my youth and like snarky references to Richard Gear's relationship with the Dalai Lama. Oh my god, that was like such a nineties joke. And I then mean, Kabbalah was the next thing. Kabbalah, but then so there was also sense. like the the you know not not that uh free not that the Nepal shouldn't have been freed, but that kind of like. You know, free, free Tibet, free Tibet. Yeah. yeah. You know, like that kind of um, po- uh, political, political organization around Tibet's Buddhist, right? That's where the Dalai Lama lives. Yes. Or does he live in Nepal? Oh, God. But I think he's supposed to live in Tibet. Well, I just, see if this was 1999, we would know this stuff. We would the know this stuff. All, all I will say is that um, my I had a Lyft driver recently who was telling me about his upcoming trip to Nepal. And it did include a visit with the Dalai Lama. He, he specifically? Yes. I was like, have you seen it before? And he's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> That sounds cool that you could just like book an appointment. So thinking about this a little bit more widely, I think, you know, stop stop me if I'm uh, getting into areas of things that with my uh, political, cultural knowledge simply don't understand. But we watched the Darjeeling Limited last (laughs) night. And thinking about that, thinking about this, thinking about the idea of like religions where there is a guy that you could go check out. Yeah. A a, a, a guru. A guru or yeah, like uh, someone who's like, we picked this guy and he's like, he's, he's our guy. Um, and so like, come, he'll, he takes visitors. Uh, <laughs> I like, I think there would maybe be a time in my life where I would think that that was like not cool. And now I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, it's funny that the conversation of this passage brought us <laughs> to the idea of guru mysticism, uh, and accessibility mm-hmm. of, uh, in an earlier passage where it is glossed over, to imply that Lyle is actually levitating. 100%, 100%. Thank you for bringing that back. I would have completely forgot that. There is well, a I would have forgotten guru. it unless you, got to the, unless you came back there around to gurus. There is a literal guru at, at ETA, and one of these questions is, who like the the question that the book brings up is like who do you trust to spiritually advise you? I guess the, the, and the, that's specifically what we're getting at at this whole power is like who is the higher power? Who do you give? Who do you in the parlance of one Mister A Ketis, give it away to? Who do you give it away to? Uh, and, and all these I'm, all these people are different people looking for different exploring different methods of, of doing this and it could be anyone from like the guy that they pick like I don't know the Pope uh, and like that's, <laughs> I don't know the Pope I don't know the frick, the freaking the freaking Pope. Pope or it could be like a slightly older person than you who's like seen some shit and is like down to hang out yeah. that's like the that's like the AA thing or the cycle of guidance of uh, guidances and recoveries as depicted within a uh, blood nun but, yeah, blood, blood sister, blood yeah. sister, one tough nun. Uh, blood nun, one tough sister. Like you've got himself who has had these failed AA experiences, and then he's kind of mediating mm-hmm. that through this hyper, hyper violent. We'll we'll see. We get the full movie plot. Oh um, really? Yeah. Great. This this gets into letterbox territory for <laughs> for a minute, interspersed with some other stuff as well. But no, it is like li- isn't it the blood nun thing like literally one of the fake trailers in Grindhouse like like yeah this basically is the Grindhouse movies yeah which is why I'm wondering if if Wallace has Tarantino takes yeah because the thing I wanted to say about how he might relate to Tarantino is I feel like he would be very conflicted about it uh you know in a very love hate way because I think that he would be attracted in and interested in intellectually uh you know Tarantino's meta filmic references yeah but then i think he would be repulsed by kind of like the uh snarky lack of sincerity to it yeah but in a different way tarantino films are deeply deeply sincere yes and about one thing which is love of the movies love of the movies we love the we love the movies they are all meta movies they're meta cinema because it's like y'all seeing this shit this is crazy Uh, movies are movies are great look at the stuff you do with movies yeah and even if the characters (laughs) themselves are kind of like ironic or disingenuous or mostly like excuses to uh pastiche other things that he loves Mm -hmm. the deep like 
eye-watering, like, tear-to-my-eyes sincerity of a Tarantino movies is going like, God damn, I love the movies. <laughs> this, this is a movie to make me go, movies fucking rock. We, we, lo- we love those movies, folks. And I think that that is a real sincerity to them, and I think that that's something that Wallace would, would appreciate as someone who clearly loves movies and TV maybe too much. This is what takes me back to one of my favorite arguments to make, and I made it on our other podcast, which is called The End Introducing. If you don't know it, it's a podcast about words about music. There, You cannot make... This is this is my take. You cannot make something ironically. The making makes yeah. it unironic. You can't make a movie ironically. Yeah. You know how much that you, shit costs. You played yourself. And how, how how many people got involved in yeah. order to make it? You can't you can't make something ironically. You yeah. can be an ironic person, but once you put forth the effort, you are automatically making something yes. sincere. And your movie can use irony to uh you know advance a tone or a feeling or even just a simple joke. Yeah, uh, and perhaps the entire movie, the premise of the movie is, in its own way, a joke of yes. some of some kind. Right, or yes, that, but you gotta satiric. you gotta take it seriously at some point. Yeah, um, that's where I mean, here, you know, the the band Cake is often referred to as like one of the most like ironic bands yeah. of the '90s, right? Am, am I create when I listen to Cake music? I don't feel ironic. I'm more just like, oh, this is like, I don't know, I I like this. Uh, do you feel I do you feel arch and blasé when you listen to Cake? I think arch is maybe a good good word for it. But here's the thing, Droll. About, yeah, here's the thing about Cake. Obviously, their lyrics and delivery have a a, a strong form yeah. of uh, irony to them. But the music rocks. It's good music. Yeah, it goes. It makes yeah, me tap the music my is not toes. ironic. You can't. Yeah. There, it's. You're you're playing. It's too late, man. You're playing the music. It makes you tap your toes. <laughs> That's a good toe. A toe tapping. It's a toe beat. tapper. That's a real toe tapper. I don't know. There's there's much to think about. The uh, as always. There's a lot. There's a lot of jest uh, to be. Yeah. The, to be the jest is it's infinite. That feel when um the passage that was like those quick cut paragraphs I found was interesting and not something that like it, the book rarely if ever sl- slots back and forth between yeah. uh, locations as that. Yeah. It made it feel like it was bu- building to something but alas it was not. Pemulus hid something in the ceiling titles t- tiles. Oh I, I think I like totally um, if you think about what Pemulus owns and has piss? you can what? what? Hides oh oh he the, okay yeah that was, he... was like his own uh no, you know, I was I was thinking maybe more like uh the, like Ill- illicit substances yes. recently purchased from a uh, uh the Antitwar brothers. Oh, the, uh, the Antitwar brothers, not the Chinese. Didn't he purchase illicit substances Whoa. from a Chinese man? Uh, a different guy did that. I don't I don't know if he got it from the Chinese guy or what. No, poor Tony got his stuff from the Chinese guy. Yeah, right? the bad heroin. Um, we got Kate Gomper walking with Ruth Van Cleve. Poor Tony's trying to rob them portrait trying to rob them i don't know if it was made explicitly clear but like there was pretty early on in the book a reference to a woman who had an artificial external heart that she carried around, around in a, a purse bag. yes and then and got the per- she got purse snatched. snatched and so she was like yelling at someone being like my heart he stole my heart uh-huh. that was poor tony yes so i poor think tony i made is that a, a, is a uh, purse snatcher uh an in, uh, incorrigible purse snatcher uh, uh, the last thing I was, I did look up what a ha- Hanuman is. Hanuman, <laughs> it is a um a Hindu god that looks uh l- looks kind of like a, a monkey, um, <laughs> and so comparing a young female uh, tennis player to that is maybe not the most flattering. Um, it seems like the girls in this in this uh, tennis academy are generally portrayed as obnoxious. Yes, I but mean it seems like. Uh... <laughs> I mean, that's one of the funny things about this for how uh, wicked, you know, smart Wallace is that all the female characters in this are just like, you know, as you pointed out when we first met Kate Gompert, that even Wallace can't avoid describing a female character as basically breasting boobily. Yeah, of course. And still, every time she comes up in this book, all I can think of is, remember, she's got big tits. (laughs) Because he makes a big point about that, like the first time you see her. Yeah, and then like, and then every other woman is like either like a Van Cleef, like obnoxious shrill, or all the uh, yeah, the um, tennis girls tennis who girls are driving are kind of grotesque. Yeah, are all grote- yeah. grotesque, or like even if they're not specifically grotesque, they're annoying the shit out of hell. How because they're eating yogurt, yogurt weirdly. Yeah, uh, or you know, or they're like literally 
saintly to the point of n- not being able to show their face. Yeah, right. Uh, in terms of beauty and like fragile uh, porcelain doll yeah. style frailty like jo- uh, Joelle. Um, maybe the only like normal cool seeming female character is uh, what's her name who runs and at house who's like kind of down with uh don oh yeah pat montesian pat, pat montesian yeah she's cool who still has like kind of a rugged in my mind at least like a leathery rugged been through some shit uh you know yeah the 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 beat on her is like that kind she's, of one of the guys she's very beautiful but half her face and body's paralyzed due oh, okay. to the like uh al- alcoholic stroke that she had okay so yeah it's a perfect perfect uh she's like the female two-face it's like yeah she's very hot but like one side of her face like doesn't move <laughs> So what's what's that all about? Yeah. So uh, what's what's your deal with girls, uh, DFW? If you really think about it, all the all the everyone everyone's body in this is kind of gross or weird in a certain way. Yeah, Dawn, it's true. Dawn's I mean, everybody's huge with grotesque. a perfectly square head. All even the male ETAs, like when they flex their forearms, it doubles in size. Uh, the way that he described Jo in this series stork. of the, like a hunched and stooped stork like. Yeah, yeah, he's su- super tall and skinny with terrible eyesight. I imagine, uh, I always imagine J.O. as having uh, pleated khakis that are like belted up to like up his, like the totally. below his rib cage, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody's grotesque, but I don't know. It's like. Uh, pitch for young, young J.O. I don't know if it is ever going to be relevant in this story, but the kid from. Um, uh, that Western movie. Oh, the power of the dog. The power of the dog. The kid from the power of the dog oh, seems yeah. like he would play play a decent Jo. Yes. Um, Give if him we a bow tie. To see him in like you know, in like early college or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> James and Condenza, the college years. <laughs> uh, I don't know anything. Anything else here? Uh, I think that's it. Okay. Um, what I, don't, I don't. You know, I'm just thinking of religions. I'm like. I don't mean to be dismissive of religions, but it is funny that part of it is just picking a guy. Yeah, you just... That's our guy. guy? That's our boy. Yeah, it is. Which is like, again, we didn't... We don't super want to be a centralist about it, but it's like, you kind of like... The only way religion really makes sense if you take it seriously to me is uh, if you just go with what you're born into. Because (laughs) otherwise, like, waiting until you're fully conscious and then looking at the vast expression of human religiosity and and, uh, thinking, having the presumption that you can use with your adult brain like reason and logic and belief to pick one of the guys i think that it's just at that point it's like a sports team of yeah. like who who's looking best for the fall season <laughs> like i'm really i'm really liking the lineup of uh of what's going yeah, yeah. on right now uh yeah it uh, looks like um or who's throwing the better parties uh yeah the 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 on base st- uh, the on base percentage of Anglicanism is looking uh, high right now. I'm sensing a lot of salvation uh, coming out of Anglicanism for the uh, 22 23 season. <laughs> sensing a lot of salvation. Looking, uh, looking so, good. Yeah, they'll keep looking good, and hopefully in the next few years. And so, um, if you get in on the ground floor of the fandom now, uh, you're gonna it's gonna pay off dividends in <laughs> the afterlife. Uh, anyway. Shall we? Stay, stay, stay blessed and frosty out there. Uh, stay cool. Have a great summer. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>